This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The race to become Colorado's next governor is wide open because Democrat John Hickenlooper is term limited next year. At least 14 people are vying for the job. Voter Ashley Plumer of Manitou Springs attended a gubernatorial forum recently and told us she has mixed feelings about the crowded field. I'm honestly not a huge fan of it. Sometimes I think that it really shows that there's infighting within the party. But at this point, it is good to hear different voices. Why are there so many candidates this cycle? And what does it mean for voters? Well, University of Denver political scientist Seth Maskett has some ideas. He wrote about the gaggle of candidates in the magazine Pacific Standard. He's traveling for Thanksgiving and joins us by phone. Seth, welcome back to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. You write that in both 2010 and 2014, Democrats settled on Hickenlooper pretty quickly as their candidate. And while the Republican contest in 2010 was, as you put it, messy, the primary itself was not. So in just a few words, what makes this campaign cycle different? Well, yeah, at this point in the 2014 cycle, there were maybe four or so candidates who had expressed interest in running for governor on the Republican side. Hmm. Um, this year we have at least twice that, uh, on the Republican side and, and another six on the Democratic side. Um, for, for this close to the primary, uh, next spring, uh, this is uh, actually a lot of candidates to still have in the race. That doesn't mean they'll all still be here by the time the primary rolls around, but usually quite a few have gotten the impression that it's just not going to happen for them. And we haven't really seen that many candidates kind of winnow out so far. What do you think is driving this? I think there's a couple of things. Uh, as I wrote about in my piece, it was uh, I think there's a lot of different types of uncertainty hmm. uh, that seems to be driving it. There's been a few changes uh, in the way that politics have been running, both within the state and, and nationally, uh, that are giving, I think, more candidates an idea that this is a good time to run. So we're not just seeing this in Colorado. Let's get Colorado-specific first off and then maybe look at the national trends. It strikes me that in this state, there has been an opening of the primaries to voters beyond the parties. Do you think that's at play here? I think that's part of it. So we've, uh, we have now an open primary system. Uh, candidates for governor, uh, many of them will still go through the, the caucus and assembly process, uh, which is uh, you know a, a, a party process. But some of them are going to just attempt to petition directly on to uh, the primary ballot for next spring. And that's now open, uh, which means unaffiliated voters can participate in it. And they'll receive a mail-in ballot. Um, they'll actually have a choice between the two major parties, and they'll send one back. We don't actually know at this point uh, you know, how many unaffiliated voters are actually going to go ahead and do this. But it's potentially changing the calculations for who could win. There might be a chance for... Uh, more moderate candidates to do better, uh, whereas they they would have gotten the impression that it's a much more closed system in previous years. It sounds a bit like the parties are losing something of a stranglehold. Would you say that? Yeah, I I, I do get the impression that uh, party leaders, party elites, insiders, whatever you want to call it, uh, used to uh, have more of a say over which candidates uh, even had a chance of running. Oh. And now I, I think there's, uh, you know, there's much more of an impression that uh, you know, party leaders just don't have that kind of influence anymore. Um, and that, you know, any, any candidate who can 
raise a little bit of money and uh, get voters to pay attention to them, it has a significant chance of winning. Okay, so those are some of the specific forces in Colorado. What do you think is going on nationally? Because you say Colorado is not unique in this respect with such crowded fields of candidates and races. Yeah, well, we see a similar thing going on um, with the 2020 presidential race. I mean, obviously, it's still very early there. But uh, if you look at that, there's, you know, by, by some counts, there's at least two dozen people who have expressed interest in running for the Democratic nomination to take on Donald Trump. Uh, that's an unusually large number. And, and these aren't candidates who just say, yeah, I want to be president. These are people who have actually, like, shown up in Iowa and New Hampshire and are raising money and putting together teams. Um, and part of it is I, I think that we see um, – States like Colorado that have uh, moved away from a closed caucus and moved into an open primary system. And also you even see the DNC, uh, the Democratic National Committee, taking on um, uh, possibly changing its rules uh, for nominations. There's, uh, they're considering some proposals to uh, get rid of some superdelegates, to make caucuses easier to, to participate in. Um, all of which would make it uh, possibly easier for insurgent candidacies like Bernie Sanders, uh, but not necessarily him, but maybe many other candidates uh, to have a shot at the nomination. So, uh, again, it's, you know, there's only going to be one at the end, but I think there's more people with the idea that the system is easier for them now than it used to be. So we heard from that voter in the introduction who felt mixed about how crowded the gubernatorial field is. You know, she likes the idea that there's lots of choice, but it can be overwhelming as well. Um, I, I have the same feeling when I try to buy toothpaste at the supermarket. You know, it's nice to have all the selection. It can also be overwhelming. What does this mean for voters? I mean, is it more likely that I'd find a candidate who more closely matches my worldview? Well, voters, they don't always get a whole lot of information uh, about these candidates. I mean, it's, it's one thing at the presidential level. At, at the gubernatorial level, um, there are going to be certainly some candidate forums. There will be advertisements, but generally somewhat less attention is paid to these. Um, and voters may actually have to choose between four or five, six or even more candidates uh, by the time the primary rolls around. And they're going to have to go with you know, whatever cues are available to them. They'll listen to, they'll see who's endorsing which candidate. They'll uh, listen to their friends who pay closer attention to politics than they do. Uh, they might just see an ad that particularly resonates with them. They might, um, you know, listen to some other form of advertising or happen to catch a, a glimpse of a debate on television. But they'll be making this decision uh, based on not the, not a whole lot of information and They'll probably also start complaining that it's getting annoying with all the ads, <laughs> with, huh. with all the candidates showing up all over the state. That is prior to the primary. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's like to be very crowded. Very briefly, how do you think money plays into this and the ability to raise it? So money is, I, I think, another uh, interesting part to this. Um, there haven't been a lot of direct changes to the law in the last few years, but there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of uh, more creative ways of interpreting existing campaign finance law, especially in Colorado over the last few years. Um, we have a number of, uh, basically there's, you know, there's still tight regulations over uh, direct donations from one donor to one candidate, but there are a lot of other ways to uh, to get money into uh, politics, there are the so-called uh, social welfare organizations uh, uh, known as 501c4s. 
basically as long as the preponderance of those org- of those organizations' funds aren't involved in politics, they don't have to disclose a lot about where their money comes from or where it's going, but they can still be very influential in politics. Yeah. And uh, a lot of uh, people who are interested in, in influencing elections will donate through those sort of organizations, as well as 527s, super PACs, and, and other committees that are it's just much harder to track that money than it used to be. That is Seth Maskett. He's a University of Denver political scientist. He joined us by phone as he travels for Thanksgiving, and you can find a link to his article, What's With All the Candidates, at CPR.org. Now, the integrity of elections and voting machines is a matter of national concern after attempts to tamper with the 2016 presidential contest. But Colorado's ahead of the game when it comes to guaranteeing an accurate outcome. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad reports. It's kickoff day for Colorado's first-ever statewide risk-limiting election audit. And while the word audit alone doesn't sound very fun, the mood in the room at the Secretary of State's office is celebratory. Secretary of State Wayne Williams begins the process. There is a bag of dice. And so what we're going to be doing is having is drawing a name. That person will then come forward and draw a die. Singular. No, this is not a pre-audit game of Parcheesi. People take turns picking names from a hat, and then that person has to roll a ten-sided die. They do it over again, 20 times. The point of all of this is to generate a random 20-digit number to feed into the state's new audit software. Mr. Philip Stark. All right. All right. <laughs> Dr. Stark, come on up. Thank you. Philip Stark is a professor of statistics at University of California at Berkeley. Eight. The number eight has been rolled. Remember that 20-digit number, the reason for all these dice rolls? Stark developed a formula that takes that number and uses it to target specific boxes of ballots in each county. The closer a race is, the more ballots get pulled. Those ballots are compared to the election night record of how the machine counted them. It's all an attempt to make sure the machines are reading ballots correctly. Stark says other election audits start with the premise that the results are correct. Not this one. So... When you go into a risk-limiting audit, you start by assuming that the answer is wrong. You start by assuming that the reported winner didn't really win. From there, local officials work backwards. And then you start saying, I'm going to collect evidence, and if the evidence becomes convincing that the winner really did win, I get to stop auditing. Unelected until proven elected, so to speak. Stark says this method could cut down on the number of ballots county clerks have to review for many races. A software company called Free and Fair took Stark's formula and has scaled it up so that states like Colorado can use this method for statewide elections. And Colorado is the first state to do so. Stephanie Singer with Free and Fair says testing the efficiency of voting machines means relying on some analog methods, like dice rolls. So we take what the computer says your ballot said, and then we have a team of people, citizens, looking at your actual paper ballot and checking, did the computer actually read your ballot the way people would? The software is open source, so other states can take it and modify it for their own use. In fact, officials from Rhode Island are observing the process, along with members of the Federal Election Assistance Commission. This whole process has been almost 10 years in the making for Colorado. And Colorado's Secretary of State, Wayne Williams, is basking in the moment. 
This is, in many ways, a new day for ensuring the integrity of elections. Friday is the deadline to complete the audit and certify the 2017 election. One more step towards making sure elections aren't just a dice roll. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. Zero! If you're not locked into the same old side dishes for Thanksgiving, then Frank Bonanno has an idea for you. The Denver chef runs 10 restaurants, which could make him really snooty, but he's not. He delighted in teaching me to make a twist on creamed spinach using goat cheese. It's a popular dish here at French 75, Bonanno's latest restaurant, a casual French joint in downtown Denver. Frank, why is this a good dish for Thanksgiving? Because I think it's easy to make. And quite honestly, if you don't want to go through the process of wilting spinach, frozen spinach works just as well. Like, just defrost that spinach, wring it out, and use that, and it makes it so much easier. He knows because he buys frozen spinach when he makes it at home. Again, not snooty. It's pretty easy. We just start with a shallot and just rough chop it because we're going to blend it so it doesn't really matter. I have a pinch of butter, as we can see. That doesn't seem like a pinch. Uh, That's like three tablespoons, probably. I'm going to turn the heat up. The butter and shallots go in a frying pan, then some white wine, heavy cream, salt and pepper. White pepper, not black. He likes that it doesn't make the dish look speckled. Then it all goes into the blender with the goat cheese. And when you're blending something that's very hot, you want to pulse it to get it going so it doesn't shoot up. You also don't want to fill the blender full, because I learned that the hard way. You absolutely do not want to fill the blender full. You want to keep it about halfway if it's very hot. Then he dumps the blended, creamy concoction onto the cooked spinach. How did I do? Very well. You know, I think of cream spinach as a pretty unsophisticated dish that I remember from, like, my childhood. And the goat cheese adds a layer of sophistication. I like that. And it makes it a bit of a fuller dish, I think. Yeah. No. Yeah. Little different spin on it, right? The trouble will be that I will hoard all the of cream it. spinach, and uh, my Thanksgiving dinner guests are going to have to figure out what they want to do. Well, let's leave the heat of the kitchen and talk Thanksgiving traditions with Frank Bonanno, award-winning chef. We found a quiet dining room upstairs. What are some of the staples at your Thanksgiving dinner table? Is there something you have to have every year? Well, last year we were in Barcelona, so we had to have crochetis and octopus. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It's the first Thanksgiving that we haven't had 30 people at our house. So I'm a very traditional, I love roasted turkey. I love sausage stuffing, like traditional sausage stuffing. I make cranberry sauce, but I don't love cranberry sauce, but I make it. You make it. From scratch, yeah. I buy cranberries and stew them down with a little orange peel. Orange peel. And then some of the other things that I like to have are like mac and cheese, because we always have a ton of kids running around. Some kind of pasta, but mac and cheese seems to work. Um, and mashed potatoes. Traditional sour cream mashed potatoes, and a lot of them. Uh, what does Thanksgiving mean to you? It has always meant a place for the people that work with us to come and have a home to eat dinner. And have Your a thanks- restaurants are closed on Thanksgiving. Correct. And anyone who doesn't have family in town or can't travel, we've always invited them in. And one year we had a 23-person Uno game going on, <laughs> which was incredible and lasted like three and a half hours to the wee hours of the night. Have you ever been tempted to be open on Thanksgiving? No, no. never. Okay. I have to think that you have 
some tips when it comes to serving big parties efficiently and making sure that everything's uh, not getting cold or not getting room temperature. Um, what insight might you have for the home chef? I think do as much as you can in advance. Like stuffing can be done the day before and just thrown in the oven to reheat it. Yeah. You have to give up on having food hot. Like you just have to concede hot food. Oh. If you can get it to the table warm, you're way ahead of the curve. Because Wait, I didn't expect to hear this from a, a, a vaunted chef like yourself. Oh, no, warm. Like if it's warm, I feel like I've hit my key because <laughs> even if you got it to the table hot, by the time everyone sits and there's 25 people going through a line to get food, I try and keep my mashed potatoes stuffing hot and the gravy, just so the gravy is always piping hot. And that's the easiest one to keep hot because mm. you do a big pot of it. And then you just keep refilling the container that you put out for the guests. Well, we're at your newest restaurant, French 75. Uh, a number of your chefs aren't formally trained, I understand. Uh, in fact, they had never really cooked before you hired them. We hired three people from the Emily Griff- Griffith Culinary Quick Start. Two this is of the wh- technical school yep. in town. Two of them are here and thriving. Tell me why you hire on the greener side. Because it was all that was available. Really? Oh, honestly. And, and they, they're willing to learn. They don't, they don't have opinions. They're, they're really willing to learn. Well, you're a decent teacher. You taught me to cook spinach. Uh, and so you, you enjoy the teaching. Yeah, I, I, I love having people that are engaged and passionate. That, that's it. Like, if you come to us and you want to learn, you want to grow, you want to make money and, and be passionate about what you're doing, that, that's the kind of person I want. I don't care if you came from retail or... Arby's, like if, if you have those passions and that's what you want to do, we'll teach you. We'll be patient. I mean, this is a very, French 75, very simple restaurant. There's not a lot of ingredients in every dish. It's, it's just about technique. Some of your protégés have gone on to open their own restaurants. I learned that that includes Alex Seidel of Fruition and Mercantile Dining and Provisions in Denver. But uh, I want to talk about your next project. So Milk Market is going to be a large food hall near downtown Denver, a mix of like groceries, little concept restaurants, I guess like a high-end food court. Um, why did you want to do something like this? Well, I, I don't like the term food court, uh-huh. but um, <laughs> I, I didn't think you would. We're, we're calling it more of a market because we really want to have a market component to it. it it's not just a food court. We want to have local producers that are there. We want to have pop-up local artisans come in and sell their wares. Like what? Like honey, Helly Mae's caramels, um, preserves. Anybody who's doing anything locally that's canning or jarring and has a great product, we, we want to be able to have an, a shelf to sell that on. Um, we're also going to have a butcher shop, a fish market. You know, we want to have a big grab-and-go component with prepared meals, you know, being able to go to lose hot and naked and grab a bucket of fried hot fried chicken and mashed potatoes and collard greens. This and is take another that one home. of your concepts. Yep. Yeah. So, and this seems to be a trend because I'm thinking of like Avanti Food and Beverage, Denver Central Market, th- this kind of constellation of smaller concepts. What do you think is driving this? I think that it's a fun way to go eat. Like, I think that you can go with a group of six people. And you don't have to decide what cuisine you're going for. Oh. There's everything for everybody. And I think one of the things that will distinguish us is when you go to some of these food halls, you know, you always have to go to a main bar to get a drink. Well, we're going to have alcohol and 
every venue will have alcohol. I see. So the difference is booze will be at hand, close Booze at hand. will be at hand, and <laughs> we are going to do servers. We're going to have an area that you can actually order off a menu from a couple of the venues. So if you don't want to go wait in line or get out of your seat, there'll be a server that will come up and take your order, and you'll be able to order from like 14 items. When you describe Denver's food scene, and perhaps more broadly Colorado's food scene to people these days, how, how do you characterize it? Amazing. I, I think we've grown so much. I think there's so many great restaurants out there right now. I think what Beth and Jen Jasinski have done at, with the Rio Hawk Group and what Troy Guard has done ha, has helped elevate our city so much. And even Alex. And, you know. These are other restaurateurs with multiple locations. Yes. And I think that, you know, it's just spawning other chefs, young chefs to do it. And, and I think the way that dining is going in Denver is it's so neighborhood-centric now. The destination restaurant is not dying. Hmm. There will always be a place for a destination restaurant. But I think people want to stay in their neighborhoods and eat. And that's what's giving everybody an opportunity to open a small place on their own. Now, the economics of opening a restaurant today are substantially different from when I opened my first restaurant. Well, it also sounds like the labor market is not... Uh, necessarily flush at this point either. The labor market is not flush. It is very difficult to find people. I I will tell you, this is the first time in nine months that all of my restaurants have been staffed. Oh, goodness. And that will probably only last for two more months. And that's true for servers. That's true for chefs. Chefs, line cooks, busboys, dishwashers, managers, everything. Well, Frank Bonanno, leave us with a cheap recommendation. So I just want to note, a ribeye at French 75 can cost you more than 40 bucks other entrees are in the range of 20 to 38. But for the cost-conscious diner, uh, what's your favorite cheap eat in Colorado? One of my favorite cheap seats has got to be the chili relleno burrito smothered at El Taco de Mexico on Santa Fe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, love it. And a cold, rainy day, I go there and get like 12 of them for the office. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Ryan. Denver restaurateur Frank Banana. You can find his goat cheese creamed spinach recipe at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I have scoured this studio and not found a crystal ball. So we can't tell you if Colorado is going to land Amazon's second headquarters or what would change here if it did. But we can take you to Seattle, where Amazon has its first headquarters, and tell you how that city changed. Once again, let's turn things over to Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph, hosts of the podcast Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town?, They're with KUOW Public Radio in Seattle, and this is their latest episode. Do you remember Fish Truck? How could I forget Fish Truck? (laughs) That's so true. It was 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon in Seattle. A truck overturns on old Highway 99 just south of downtown, and it is packed to the gills with fish. Wasn't that like frozen cod or something? Yes. Half a million dollars worth spilled all over the road. It's nearly midnight by the time they actually clear the fish truck off the roadway. Nine hours of gridlock. That was the cod incident. There also was a bee incident and a tanker truck incident. And in each of these cases, a single truck crash cripples the entire city. 
thousands of commuters can't get home or to work. This is the story of how we got to this point, how Seattle grew well beyond its infrastructure, and what we did or didn't do before Amazon arrived and pushed us to where we are today. I'm Joshua McNichols. I'm Carolyn Adolph. From KUOW in Seattle, this is Primed. Traffic, street, traffic, 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 traffic. Did they hear that? And our rent has gone up 10% every single year for the last four years. If you're leaning away from the future, the future is going to win every time. This episode is about the bad decisions we made starting in the 1970s and the slow, inefficient ways that we make decisions today. This is the backdrop when people complain about today's Seattle, even though sometimes we blame those things reflexively on our biggest employer, Amazon. So how did we screw up? And are there lessons for other cities who look at our booming local economy with envy? When Seattle was planning for Amazon back in 2010 or so, city leaders thought there would be 18,000 workers at most in Amazon's neighborhood. But we got more than twice that many people. 45,000. Yeah. What happened between Seattle and Amazon is kind of like if you were throwing a party. You had invited just a few people, but somehow word got out. And all of a sudden, there are 45,000 people outside, and you don't have nearly enough chips. Our failure to plan properly for the giant house party that was Amazon screwed up our city in two ways, traffic and housing. So first, let's look at traffic. This is an area where we had lots of opportunities to make things better, but we didn't. And the things we did do didn't really work. There's this one street. Mercer Street. We're standing on Aurora Avenue overlooking what is being termed the Mercer Mess. Traffic lines up from beyond Seattle Center and stretches eastbound until uh, you're on to Interstate 5. The folks at the traffic department tell us there's a better way to wade through all this, but it's going to cost all of us who are taxpayers. That tape is from 1977. Over the last four decades, we talked about the Mercer Mess and basically did nothing about it. Then in 2010, Amazon moves in, and all of a sudden we spent $170 million trying to make Mercer better. We ended up with like nine lanes for cars. At rush hour, it's like fish truck every day. What's the worst you've seen it? What's the worst like traffic experience you had out here? Mm, On Mercer, I've probably been on this street for at least 45 minutes just trying to get on the freeway. So 45 minutes to go how many blocks? Probably five or six traffic here when I'm coming in is insane. I mean, I was stuck here on Mercer for about 20 minutes this morning. My mom was dropping me off, and it took like 20 minutes just to take a left turn. (laughs) Seattle's solution to the Mercer mess was essentially tinkering with the lanes and the stoplights. It's all about the car. What we really needed there was a light rail system capable of dropping tens of thousands of people there every day from all over the region. We actually had an opportunity to do that 50 years ago. And like many smaller cities with no idea of the growth that was coming down the pike, we didn't seize it. There was this plan in the 70s called Forward Thrust, but we decided not to be thrust forward. We decided cars and buses were working fine, so we voted it down. It wasn't until 1996, a quarter century later, that we finally began investing in light rail. So we're building it now. But it's going to be another quarter century before the entire system is fully operational. 
We can't build our light rail system fast enough to get ahead of population growth. And we are not alone in being short-sighted in failing to invest for future growth. Kristen Capps of CityLab says Austin, Texas still rejects initiatives to build light rail, and it is considered to be among the top contenders for Amazon's second headquarters, HQ2. And Austin has notoriously bad traffic. Kristen Capps says even cities that have committed to light rail have fallen behind. I think the story for a lot of cities is maybe less about not building any rail and more about not building enough rail not building uh, the kind of expansions in a timely way that they could. So maybe I'm being a jerk for asking this, but if this were Amazon's problem, would it be solved by now? You mean, how would Amazon have solved this problem? Yeah. I mean, for one thing, it probably would have thought long term, right? Because Bezos just loves to talk about the future. You have to always be leaning into the future. If you're leaning away from the future, the future is going to win every time. Never, ever, ever lean away from the future. Back in 1994, Jeff Bezos posted a job listing to a Usenet group, offering positions in a well-capitalized Seattle startup. The last line of the job listing said, it's easier to invent the future than predict it. What the heck does that mean, to invent your own future? Should airplanes have wings? Should cars have square wheels or round wheels? That's Amazon's prime minister of ideas, H.B. Siegel. This wacky-sounding position actually tells you a lot about how they, as a tech company, think. How they're constantly questioning their assumptions using these wild thought exercises. Square wheels might seem pointless at first, but maybe not. You might also have a wheel that changes its shape over it goes over interesting terrain. Or you might have a wheel that is able to park on a hill. Thinking about ridiculous questions sometimes leads to new ideas. So how does that apply to Seattle and its many problems? Orion Boudinot used to work in Amazon. He doesn't work there anymore. He's a virtual reality producer now. And he was more of a soldier than a general there. But like everybody there, he was steeped in the company culture. And that means absorbing the little fortune cookie expressions that Jeff Bezos thinks up. Boudinot reached out to us via our Facebook page. And he told us what he thought inventing your own future would mean for Seattle. What are the crazy ideas that would fix the homelessness crisis in Seattle? What are the crazy ideas that would fix congestion? I mean, the idea has to be bonkers on some level, I think, in order to really be worth pursuing. You know, the people who think, well, Amazon will never succeed because the world doesn't work that way, don't understand that Amazon is in the business of changing the way that the world works. Amazon invents its own future by not being stuck on the way things work right now. So if Seattle's problem is we're stuck in mind-numbing traffic, how would Amazon have approached that? Maybe they would have thrown out their assumptions. Maybe they would have said, well, do we have to add more people to this transportation network? What if we just added people to some other transportation network? Well, actually, when you think about it, that's exactly what they're doing with HQ2. Mind blown. (laughs) Okay, so Seattle operates with bad, outdated assumptions. What else do we do wrong? Well, we're not a very decisive lot in the Pacific Northwest. Listen to this. This is early in the process. We're hoping to have some formal recommendations come to council in May, and then we'll have deliberations starting in June in council on how we want to move forward on this. So it's great that so many folks are here today at the front end of what's going to be a long process. 
Ah, that quote just drains the life out of you. Absolutely. And that is the sound of the Seattle process. It is a real thing. The Seattle process even has its own Wikipedia entry. Definition, seeking consensus through exhaustion. That tape is actually about building more affordable housing. We really, really value consultation and input, and we do not place a premium on decisive action, even in a crisis. And we are definitely in a crisis. Housing costs are rising faster here than anywhere else in the country. Rents in Seattle are growing eight times faster than the national average. That's according to Zillow. And last year, the average price of a home in Seattle went up by 13 percent. It stands now at around three quarters of a million dollars. You know, you do what you can, but the rents just keep going up and up and up and up and up. And eventually you're out on the street. And our rent has gone up 10 percent every single year for the last four years, which is an incredible amount for people on fixed incomes. That is the sound of a crisis. So Seattle's political system is responding to this fast-moving crisis with our traditional glacial inefficient system of seeking consensus among stakeholders. We are moving way too slow. So let's ask this again. How might Amazon have approached our housing crisis? There's a hint in one of their principles as a company. Disagree and commit. You fight over what's the best solution, and then there's a cutoff point. And whatever decision is made, everybody throws themselves behind making it work. So that when it fails, you can't say it was because of politics. It was because it was a bad idea. And now you have the data to prove it. So then you have to be willing to change your mind and pivot quickly to a new approach. Anybody who doesn't change their mind a lot is dramatically underestimating the complexity of the world that we live in. Just learn from your failures, and move on. Yeah, here's an example. Amazon had this auction site. It was designed to compete with eBay that turned out to be a complete boondoggle. Bezos loved it, but when it failed, he cut it off like a dying tree limb. Here's Ryan Boudinot. In the government, if something fails, it's a big public issue. It's a PR nightmare, and it's likely that someone will get voted out of office. Whereas with Amazon, if something fails, they're just very sober-minded about why it failed, and they figure out what went wrong, and they figure out what's valuable about it and what can be salvaged from that. Okay, to recap, we have diagnosed some problems in our cultural and political DNA that left us unprepared for Amazon. We could have made some smarter long-term decisions starting in the 1970s, and we definitely could streamline the way we make decisions. And we need to recognize when we fail. There's a word to describe how Seattle approaches its problems. And it isn't inefficiency. It isn't stagnation. It's called democracy. You know, sometimes we hear this idea coming from tech companies that the problems of government can somehow be fixed by the magic pixie dust of disruption and innovation. But that ignores that these systems were built over decades for a reason. Ron Sims was the King County executive when Amazon's growth started to explode. Government is a series of laws, and you're restrained by those laws. Uh, You have no choice. So you just simply cannot do what um, the private sector does, which is they can move with agility that government is not allowed to. Our purpose is greater than any single company interest. Sure, local governments were responding slowly. But maybe if you look at it another way... 
they were responding deliberately. Right. I mean, we talk about the Seattle process as slowing things down, and it does. But on the other hand, it's there to protect people from danger and injustice. It's there to keep us from building cheap fire trap apartments that burn to the ground. It's there to keep us from tearing down the best parts of our city, like the Pike Place Market or the Space Needle. Or our first Starbucks store. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the fact that Seattle chose to move deliberately didn't keep Amazon from moving just as fast as it wanted to. So we made some boneheaded decisions over the last 40 years. And our political culture moves at a glacial pace. Well, we did this in the name of democracy. But Amazon's growth steamrolled us. And future HQ2 cities, make sure that you learn from that. Also, maybe we could all learn a few things from Amazon. So they have an extremely long view of, of history and their, and their place in it. And I think, you know, Jeff Bezos, who once spent millions of dollars building a clock in the desert that will tell time for 10,000 years, you know, he's not thinking in terms of the next election cycle. I don't know how you get politicians to do that. I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah. how, how do you tell it's, a politician you just need to think past the next election cycle? Right. It's, well, there you go. That's a big <laughs> – that's the challenge. We have this nostalgia for how things were, and we have these forces that are changing things without a lot of consultation. Kristen Capps of CityLab thinks American cities are at something of a crossroads. He says we might have to choose between the city we love and a city that can accommodate everyone. It just seems increasingly that you kind of can't have both. You can't keep cities the way that they used to be, and you can't you can't do that while you also make it a place where people can afford to live. That means longtime residents, newcomers, and the company that has honestly been a golden goose. So HQ2 cities, these are the kinds of choices you're going to have to make. Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph are the hosts of Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town. The podcast comes to us from KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. And your feedback and questions can help future episodes. Join the Primed Facebook page to contribute. There's a link at CPR.org. The old control tower at Denver's former airport has a new life. It just opened as a punch bowl social, part arcade, part bar and restaurant. As it was under renovation, we took a tour. And our guide was Mike Coulter. He was an air traffic controller at Stapleton. Have you been back to this site since Stapleton closed? Not since 1995. Really? This is your first time back? First time back. And I wonder what is going through your mind or your heart right now. I'm wondering where everything is. I know it looks a lot <laughs> looks a lot different around here. There aren't you can't runways. put airplanes in any of these buildings here. <laughs> We're surrounded by homes uh, because a neighborhood has grown up around what yeah. used to be taxiways and terminals. Yep. What do you feel when you look up at that tower? It looks just like it did then. You know, old, small, but was home. 
Now, you say it's small. I guess we're going to have that experience ourselves, but what do you mean? Well, compared to DIA or any of the newer towers, it, there's not a lot of space up there, about 800 square feet, so not a lot of room to move around. Well, why don't we go up to the top of the tower, and I'd like to ask for a few of your memories <laughs> from okay. up there. And a lot of them. So, Mike, the elevator isn't operating. We're going to take the stairs all the way up? Yep, take the stairs. Okay. I've had before. That, that, that's something you're used to. I'm used to it. How yep. many stories do you know? Uh, I can't remember what this one is. I think we're on 14 or 15 compared to DIA, which is 33. Okay, let's go up. With hard hats on, Mike and I begin the long climb to the top. The tower's been gutted down to the studs and concrete. It's all part of the plan to turn this landmark into a punch bowl social. We continue up the stairs. It does go on, doesn't it? On and on and on, nothing changes. Four stories, then eight, ten, twelve. We pass what would have been the control tower offices and break room. Water falls on us as snow melts on the roof from a recent storm. There's a draft, too. And it was always this cold in here, too. It never warmed up. Finally, we reach the top, and Mike Coulter takes it all in. Oh, man. What a view. Nicer view than DIA, let me tell you. Why? Closer to everything. Yeah, so much closer to the mountains than DIA. A lot. It is pretty small. How many people would work in this space? Uh, You generally have six. Six, plus all the equipment. Everything was close. With so many people in such a tight space, did it get smelly? Ah, you know, on occasion. Uh, you know, if the air conditioning went out, or in, a couple times in the winter when the furnace went out, you know, when, and they heated up, we'd get fog on the windows. <laughs> I remember one time we had somebody wipe the windows down because of the fog that was on when they were trying to get it going again. It was low-tech sometimes. Uh, all the time was low-tech. Yeah, compared to today, yeah, this was very low-tech. Uh, yeah, it looks a lot different. And there are photos of the old tower inside and out at cprnews.org. I want you to tell us about when the Pope and President Clinton <laughs> came to Denver. Their big 747s were parked. And there were two of them down there, and they were nose to nose. Uh, it was back in 1993, just before this closed. Uh, in fact, had DIA opened on time, all that would have taken place out at DIA. Ah, what else do you remember from that day? Well, when they were leaving, I mean, there's a set protocol for almost anything that happens with dignitaries come and go. Well, they were both parked over there, you know, and we didn't have to close the airspace down like you do today. Oh. So this airport just kept operating. Uh, and you had the Pope and the President over there. Air, Air Force, Force One. Air sit- Force One. Yeah. And, uh, Papal One. <laughs> Air Italia 747. They were waiting for each other to leave. And through communications and however they deal with each other. I mean, obviously, we had the Secret Service up here. In the tower? They would, yeah. They would, a week in advance, their phones would come in. And they'd set up, and then there'd be a Secret Service agent. just hanging around, oh, wow. drinking coffee, watching what was going on. But it sounds like the president was thinking the pope would go first, and right. the pope was they, thinking the president would go first. Neither of them knew which one was supposed to leave first. <laughs> so they were literally both pointed out there, and we're like, okay, we close the airport now to let them taxi out. We shut the east-west complex down. Okay, somebody move. Who went first? Uh, eventually, the Pope did. The but Pope. You see somebody first. come out. Somebody in a military uniform. Eventually, he saw the door open. Air Force One came out and went over 
to paper one uh, and had a conversation and between that and their radios and telephones, uh, they resolved and the president stayed there and waited until the Pope left. Uh, and he literally sat there until the Pope was airborne and then he taxied out. And- Taxiway diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. For those who haven't been in Denver long enough, one of the cool things about the old Stapleton Airport is that uh, one of the runways, taxiways, went over I-70. Over so the interstate. It's quite possible to have a 747 on top of you. Yes. Yeah. Not quite possible. Quite likely. Quite likely. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite airport between Denver and Stapleton, DIA and Stapleton? Oh, I would take Stapleton a heartbeat. Why? Why? You know, maybe because I, I spent so much time here, but it was, it was smaller, it was more compact, uh, certainly a little more crazy, uh, work by the seat of your pants type operation. I mean, things happened here a little quicker. I mean, things out at DI are still technical and busy, but here, this airport wasn't built for the amount of airplanes that landed and took off every day. Mm, you had, you had to... 1,800, 2,000 airplanes land and taken off in this small space. Uh, you it's, had to adapt. It, you had to adapt, and with yeah. the changing wind and weather, we'd take off opposite direction, crossing back and forth. It was just, you had to be on your toes. And when I was on the ground, they all look alike. So, How much different was the weather here at Stapleton than at DIA, where you later worked, given how much closer it is to the mountains? was uh, Out there, you could see it coming to some extent. You're a little farther away from the mountains. You could see it build. Here, being close to the mountains, they would literally build... Every afternoon in the summer. The clouds would build. The clouds would build. The thunderstorms would build. You know, and we just keep going until they get built to a point. But this close, once they roll off the foothills, they're here. We had to turn the airport around uh, to get them into the wind. Clear to land, jet like 21, 28. Uh, wind sure alert now. 2-5 knot loss on the runway. Wind 280 at 1-9-er for runway 2-6. Uh, United uh, 579 going around. And with this airport, along with Orlando, uh, these two airports had the most thunderstorms and wind shears of any airport in the country. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we've been speaking with Mike Coulter, a retired air traffic controller. We are looking at a pretty fantastic view of Denver from the top of the old Stapleton control tower, which sat for years empty, people wondering what it would become. And what it will become is a punch bowl social, a kind of fancy bowling alley, restaurant, bar. We're going to talk a little bit with the CEO of the company, Robert Thompson, about the challenges, the opportunities of converting a control tower into an eatery. Robert, the burning question is, will this tower the very tip top of it, be open to people? I don't think it'll be open on day one. It's not ADA compliant. and Not um, accessible, that is. That's right. It's not accessible. And um, so the, the city and, uh, uh, and the ADA would like us to uh, facilitate that before we bring customers up here. Because the elevator only goes so far, then you have to take the steps. That's right. So and that's the way it was when it was the uh, uh, air tower, and that's the way it still is today. We'd have to bring the elevator up multiple floors. But the, the elevator wasn't functioning for us, which is why my calves are still burning. So I understand the city approached you as a possible redeveloper of this site. What went through your mind when they made that proposal? Not much. Um, I, uh, I would not recommend this to any business student, but I said yes within about 15 seconds. Why? Uh, because this was a Colorado icon. 
And uh, we here in Denver and in Colorado have been struggling to figure out what to do with this tower. So when Councilman Herndon from uh, the city of Denver's uh, council uh, asked me to consider this, I said yes, and then we'd figure out the rest later. There are so many fabulous faraway places to see, such as Mexico, Sweden, Hawaii, Japan, and Capri. That was Robert Thompson, owner of Denver-based Punchbowl Social. We spoke earlier this year. The company's newest location just opened at the old airport control tower in Denver's Stapleton neighborhood. You can see photos from our visit and vintage photos of the tower at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. I feel certain that people we'd be glad to know there So tell me why don't we get up and just go there Go to those fabulous places where we long to be